from the New Media Project at the NYU School of Medicine and the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, what is therapy for neovascular AMD worth? Well, it turns out that laser by far is the least costly. However, it doesn't give as much value as the others. First this, the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education requires a financial interest disclosure before any CME activity. Dr. Brown declares no real or apparent conflicts of interest. As seen from here, the first podcast for physicians, the first podcast to offer CME credit, and the first to offer multinational editions, is now co-sponsored by the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. The ASCRS recognizes the power of this new medium in communication and education of physicians everywhere. This partnership will allow us to bring new content to you and add new voices to our community. From Manhattan to Mumbai, from the Bay Area to Beijing, one conversation as seen from here. As physicians, we act for the benefit of our patients, but sometimes we do alter therapy for the benefit of society as a whole. Now, before you say no, I always put my patient first. Think about the last time you treated bacterial conjunctivitis. Did you choose a fourth-generation fluoroquinolone? If not, why not? Either you chose to reserve that medication to stem development of resistance, clearly a societal goal, or you chose a more inexpensive medication. The expensive therapy is also ultimately a societal consideration, and one of which we take account in our clinical practices. But deciding to adjust therapy based upon cost-effectiveness begs the question, what does it mean to be cost-effective? Gary Brown has applied the tools of value-based medicine to therapy of subfovial neovascular macular degeneration, and I'm delighted to have him as my guest today. Gary, what does neovascular AMD cost? We, in one of our papers, we studied this, and neovascular macular degeneration cost the country in regard to loss of GDP, gross domestic product, approximately 5 to $6 billion a year. It's interest that, of interest that dry macular degeneration, even though it tends to be less incapacitating, is 10 times more common than wet, and that actually uh, costs the nation about $24 billion a year. But wet macular degeneration is between 5 to $6 billion a year in what it costs in regard to loss of productivity in the GDP. What does this cost mean? Are, are, are these lost wages, increased societal expense, higher insurance premiums? None of, I mean, these are more so some of the societal costs were included in there. The problem is when you say societal costs, nobody has a definition of what to include in societal costs. We all know it includes direct medical costs such as doctors and um, hospitals and whatnot. Uh, but the question is, what else do you use in societal costs? Do you use money that has to be paid in for, um, you know, disability? Do you look at the loss of the gross domestic product, how much those people would be producing 
otherwise that they can't produce? Or do you look at caregiver costs? Or do you look at travel costs? And the problem is that there has been no consensus to date on what to include as societal costs. And that's why when we do our um, cost-utility analyses, our value-based cost-utility analyses at this time, we just use direct medical costs, doctors, drug, hospital, durable medical goods. Societal would be better, but the problem is when there's no definition what to include, you never have one article that's really directly comparable to another. So when people come around and say, hey, this is what should be in societal cost, then it'll be better. But that $5 billion is just loss to the gross domestic product, loss of productivity. Uh, remember, the gross domestic product is you know, the sum of all the wages and services produced within the United States, and it's about uh, $12 trillion. So it's, it's a small amount, but still, it's in dollars, it's huge. I mean... Yes, taxes could be taken out of that, um, and there also would be less caregiver costs. If you want to include those as well, and disability, it would be even higher. I would say probably around eight to ten billion a year for wet macular degeneration. We've had a couple of podcasts on value-based topics, but I don't think I've ever asked anyone what value-based medicine is. Value-based medicine was a term that was originated at the Center for Value-Based Medicine, where um, I work. And what value-based medicine is, essentially it's the practice of medicine based upon the value, which is improvement in length of life and or quality of life, that's the definition of value, conferred by healthcare interventions. And um, value has nothing to do with cost but value is the benefit conferred by these interventions. So you want to practice medicine and give patients the interventions that have the, give them the best value. And that's essentially what value-based medicine is. You look at the value first. If the value of different interventions is the same, well, then you look at the cost and see which one's cheaper. Now, the comparative unit that you used in this study and, and is often used in studies like this are qualies. What is a quali? A quali is a term called quality-adjusted life year. And it first came out in a paper by a gentleman, Dr. Klarman, K-L-A-R-M-A-N, in 1968 in the urology literature. And what we do with value-based medicine is we use the tool cost-utility analysis and we standardize all the parameters set with it. That's the problem. To date, nobody has standardized those. So almost every cost-utility, also called cost-effectiveness paper in the literature, is not comparable to another one because there's been no standardization at this point. Um, what we do is we look at utility values associated with health states. For example, a person with 20-20 vision forever in each eye would have a utility of one. That's the utility for perfect, perfect health. If we were talking about cardiac disease, it would be a perfect heart, or lung disease would be perfect lungs. But with ophthalmologic interventions, we talk about normal vision forever. Zero is death. And going down the scale, no light perception vision in each eye is about 0.26. So if you lose all your vision in both eyes, it really takes you way down. What we can do, however, is we can look 
at the vision, and it's particularly related to the vision in the better CNI, we can look at the quality of life associated with that health state. For example, if somebody with 2100 vision and the better eye comes in, we know that their utility of value, utility value, excuse me, is about 0.66. If we take them up to 2040 in their better seeing eye, the utility value goes up to 0.80, which is a 0.14 difference. So that's the improvement in quality of life, 0.14 utility units. Then what you have to do is you have to look and see how long that benefit lasts. And if the benefit lasts, for example, 20 years, you multiply the improvement in utility times the duration of benefit, which would be 20 years, and that gives you the number of quality-adjusted life years. And in this particular situation, that would come out, I believe, to be 2.8 quality-adjusted life years. If your utility improved by 0.1, and the benefit lasted for 10 years, then your incremental value will be one quality adjusted life year. So that, that's where the qualities come from. You can compare qualities across virtually any subspecialty, any specialty across medicine. One way we like to look at it in value-based medicine as well is we look at the improvement, the percent improvement in life's value because everybody's life has a certain value. As you go through life, you gain value every day. Um, in ophthalmology, most of the interventions, it happens to be that value is related to quality of life because very few of our interventions make people live longer. We just make them live better. So with ophthalmologic inventions, interventions, I'm sorry, we can say that the improvement in value is equal to the improvement in quality of life. So, for example, in the person who goes from 0.66 to 0.80 with a treatment, uh, the improvement would probably be, uh, you know, off the top of my head, a little bit less than 20% improvement in quality of life. And those are things that are a bit easier for docs to digest than qualities. Gary, what question did your study seek to answer? What we did is we looked at three interventions for subfoveal wet macular degeneration. And we looked at laser therapy, which has been the mainstay of treatment since about, I believe, 1991. And then we looked at pegaptinib injections in the eye. Macugen is the brand name. And then we also compared that to something called photodynamic therapy, in which we inject a divisidine into the bloodstream and then shine a light into the eye in the area of choroidal neovascularization. The blood vessels in the choroidal neovascularization preferentially absorb the dye, and when the light hits them, it causes necrosis of the blood vessels, damages, that damages the bad blood vessels that are growing. And we look to compare the value conferred by each of these interventions. And the way we did it is we looked to see how much they improved the quality of life compared to no treatment. And when we did that, we also factored in the adverse events associated with the use of these particular therapies. 
for example, pegaptinib or macogen, which is injected. Sometimes you can have severe back pain. Sometimes you can have photophobia. And sometimes, excuse me, you can have photosensitivity and phototoxicity so that you can develop a severe sunburn, meaning you have to stay inside for four to five days. And what we did is we looked at the utility or disutility, for example, of staying inside for four to five days. And the average person with photodynamic therapy and the uh, studies that randomized clinical trials had eight point. I believe it was around 8.1 treatments. So that would be approximately 40 days out of the remaining time of life that they essentially had to stay inside. So there was some disutility that we would subtract from the value. And we have a very large database of the quality of life, for example, associated with back pain and associated with photosensitivity and neck pain and you know, arthritis. We've gathered these utilities over approximately a 10-year period. So we're able to compare using the same quality of life database virtually any intervention in healthcare. But we compared these three, laser therapy, pegaptinib therapy, and photodynamic therapy with Visadine. When we talk about the cost of neovascular AMD, the, the, the costs that you mentioned, like GDP, were largely societal. But when we talk about qualities, you, you're, you're talking about the value of a particular therapy to the patient. Aren't these two things at odds? No, not really. Um, essentially, what you're doing with your interventions is you are buying your paying for value. Um, I don't want to confuse the societal costs with the direct medical cost because in our analyses, our cost utility analyses, we just use how much it costs, it costs direct medical costs or third-party insurers, same thing. We just use the cost of the treatment as far as the drug, as far as the doctor's fees, as far as doing fluorescein angiography, OCT, or whatever else is needed. And we factor that all into it. So we use a direct medical cost. Again, we stay away from societal costs at this point because when you say societal costs, there is no firm, well-accepted definition of that. That's a problem. So we stay away from things like the GDP at this point when we do our cost-utility analysis because one of the basic tenets of value-based medicine is to use cost-utility analysis in a fashion that every study is comparable with every other study. That's a critical factor. What is time trade-off utility analysis? Time trade-off is a utility analysis. Um, was developed by a gentleman named George Torrance back in the early 70s, T-O-R-R-A-N-C-E. And it was developed for healthcare. And essentially with time trade-off, we ask people Theoretically, how long do you expect to live? And if we could ameliorate your health condition and make it normal permanently for the remainder of your life, how much of that remaining time that you have, if any, would you be willing to trade in return for being able to be free of your health care problem for that remaining time you still have. So, for example, if someone said, well, I think I'm going to live 20 years, 
And I would trade four years to make my 2040 macular degeneration and the better eye to make me 2020 in each eye. Their utility would be one minus that proportion. So it would be one minus four over 20, which equals 0.8. If they traded two years, it would be one minus two over 20, which would be 0.9. So the more they trade, the lower the utility. And it turns out from extensive studies that we've performed that utilities appear to be independent of gender, independent of level of education, which really stunned us. But over and over again, the person who's in the eighth grade gives up the same proportion for the same disease as the person who's been in the 18th grade. These are more innate to human nature. They may give up the time for different reasons, but they give up the same amount of time. And it transcends as well. We've adjusted for um, comorbidities, meaning associated diseases. We've adjusted for ethnicity. And it's even, uh, you can even do utilities across state borders and international borders. For example, our utilities in the U.S. have been shown to be the same as the utilities in Canada and the utilities in Sweden. And I would suspect that in most industrialized countries, the utilities will be the same. It's just a fascinating study in sociology. What is cost-utility analysis? What you do with cost-utility analysis, you look at the qualities or the values gain, or the value gained, excuse me, and you look to see how much you're paying for it. So you look at the direct medical cost of your intervention. For example, the cost for lasers is approximately $4,000. The cost for photodynamic therapy is approximately $16,000. And the cost for macugen therapy is approximately $25,000. And that's going treating exactly as was done in the clinical trials, the randomized clinical trials for each. So the cost of laser is considerably less than either of the others. But when we look at the value, it's a very different issue. And one of the pillars of value-based medicine is the fact that patients deserve and should receive the intervention that confers the greatest value. And only when the value is equal should costs come into the equation. We have enough money in the United States to pay, to pay for everything, really, that works. Um, there's plenty of money for that. What we do is we then look and see what our utility gain is over the life expectancy of the reference case. And the reference case is the average person who has an intervention. Okay, so the average person who undergoes treatment for wet macular degeneration is approximately 74 to 75 years of age, and they have a life expectancy of approximately 12 years. You have to use the reference case rather than each individual's age. And the reason for that is if we start using each individual's age rather than the reference case, then we bias this information system against older individuals. 
And if we ever want this to become a part of public policy, which we do, it will never become a part of public policy if we bias it against age. So we use the reference case, the average case, and we calculate the cost. We divide the cost by the number of qualities gained. So if the cost of an intervention is $10,000 and it gains us two qualities, the cost utility would be $5,000 per quality adjusted life year. Where do your clinical data come from? At the clinical data, we take the evidence-based data from level one evidence, that is randomized clinical trials with a low alpha and a low beta, type one and type two errors. That's where we take our evidence-based data. Then what we do, we look at, we convert those data to utility value form. And what we have done is gathered a utility database of over 40,000 utilities gathered from four to 5,000 patients over a number of years. And many of these we've published in the literature. Um, and then we put the two together and then we calculate the costs according to the Medicare fee schedule. One thing I should mention is that there's an organization in Europe called NICE, N-I-C-E, and it's the National Institute for Health and Clinical Excellence, and it's based in England. And what NICE does is they look at the cost utility of interventions to decide whether they should be covered by the National Health Service in the United Kingdom, and virtually all of Europe follows NICE. So NICE is making decisions for, you know, in many instances, 325 million people. NICE has decided, as we do at the, uh, as we have independently at the Center for Value-Based Medicine, um, after several years of research, that time trade-off utility analysis, while not perfect, is the best quality of life instrument to use in these healthcare economic analyses. And they've used a number of our utilities. We were the guest lecturers with uh, Mr. my wife and I, Melissa, who had Mr. Andrew Dillon, who's the head of NICE, um, at a recent uh, meeting over in Warwick, England. And we compared methodologies. And uh, independently, both NICE and both our center have come to the conclusion that while not perfect, time trade-off utility analysis the best. And you might say, what's the importance of all of this? Well, in England, if your intervention in the United Kingdom costs more than $40,000 per quality or 20,000 pounds per quality, then it's probably not going to be funded. They will, however, go up to 30,000 pounds per quality or $60,000 per quality if they think that it's really something they should do. So they have a little bit of leeway. And I would guess that using those numbers, that they get 98 to 99% of the health care benefit and value that we get in the United States. For the three therapies that you looked at for neovascular AMD, how did these therapies compare in terms of value gain? Well, it turned out that laser photocoagulation gained 0.3 qualities, and it improved quality of life 4.4%. Pagaptin or macogen gained about 0.4 qualities and improved quality of life 5.9%. 
and photodynamic therapy gained about 5.8 and improved quality of life 8.5%. And the difference between laser and pegaptonic was significant, as was the difference between pegaptonib and photodynamic therapy. So for these three interventions for classic subfovial choroidal neovascularization, the preferred strategy, treatment strategy, is the use of photodynamic therapy. How do these same three therapies stack up in terms of cost utility? Well, it turns out that laser, by far, is the least costly. However, it doesn't give as much value as the others. So when we looked at cost utility, and by the way, I just want to mention briefly that we do something called discounting. We discount the value gain, the qualities, and also the cost to account for the facts that a dollar in hand today is worth more than a dollar in 10 years because you can invest that dollar today. And good health today is worth more than good health in 10 years because you can use that good health to earn money to invest it. So we discounted 3% a year in the U.S. It turns out that laser photocoagulation had a dollar per quality adjusted life here of about 8000 So it's very cost-effective. Um, pegaptinib therapy, macogen, was about 67000 So that's, you know, in England, uh, the United Kingdom, that would not be funded uh, if they used our data. Photodynamic therapy has a cost utility of approximately 31 to 32,000. So photodynamic, in this particular case, photodynamic therapy with a cost utility of 31,000 and with the greatest value is, you know, there's just no doubt about it, it is the preferred treatment uh, for among these three interventions. Now, in terms of what would and wouldn't get funded in a single-payer system like in the United Kingdom, won't a therapy that produces little clinical gain but at very low cost have a favorable cost-utility measure? That's correct. It would. Yes, if it didn't give you that much gain, but it really did, um, you know, it was very cheap, uh, we would say that it has... um, you know, a good cost utility and it'll be funded. And, you know, what would be an example of that? Perhaps the treatment of a mild bacterial conjunctivitis. You treat it with antibiotics and it gets better in two to three days and you don't treat it with anything and it probably gets better on its own in a week, maybe with just some soaks. Uh, Really not a lot of difference in value gain on the other hand, all you're dealing with is the cost of antibiotic drops, so it's going to have a very good cost utility. Now, in the U.S., what does cost utility mean to patients? Don't they want the therapy that's most valuable to them? Absolutely. And value that's why value-based medicine is so important, because it identifies which treatments are most valuable. For example, let let me give you just an an example there. Um, And this is purely theoretical, but let's look at something like stage one breast cancer. And the data um, when they were doing 
uh, chemotherapy quite a bit. This is before the aromatase inhibitors, but essentially the five-year mortality with lumpectomy and radiation and no chemo was about 6.5%. With chemo, you decreased it to 5%, so you're saving 1.5% of people um, from dying at five years. And so, you know, that's an absolute risk reduction of 1.5%, which means you have to treat 66 women to help one or prevent one outcome, the numbers needed to treat, one over the absolute risk reduction. The thing that's not factored into that particular analysis is what are the adverse effects associated with chemo. Your hair falls out, um, your self-image goes down, you probably don't go out many people for six months, you can develop GI infections, you have diarrhea, and, you know, with, with certain of the drugs, you can get cardiomyopathy, um, cardiac toxicity, and perhaps die a couple of years early on the other end. And when you factor in all the adverse effects to a very negligible clinical gain, you may say, hey, you know, I think this intervention may actually take away more value than it adds. And we believe that Stakeholders in healthcare, and that includes patients, should eventually be able to have all these data so they can decide themselves on the interventions if they know the percent gain and value of every intervention compared to the other, and they know how much it costs. Um, they'll be able to use this themselves on the internet. When we actually met with um, Mr. Thomas Scully, who was the head of Medicare, we met had a meeting with him, I believe, in 2003 or so, and he wanted at that time, he was very interested about putting this type of information up on the Medicare website so that the Medicare population could use these kind of data, and they can be simplified so that the average person understands it. I mean, you get away from qualities and you work in, you know, percent improvement in quality of life or life's value qualities turns everybody off. Um, but with value-based medicine, because number one, it introduces quality of life that many evidence-based clinical trials ignore in their primary outcomes, and because it also includes patient preferences, meaning the patients told us how bad or how good that quality of life is, we believe value-based medicine just in measuring the value conferred by interventions allows for much better care than do just evidence-based data, data evidence-based medicine alone. Rather than comparing these three therapies, isn't there some society-based monetary value for a therapy so that therapies costing less than this per quality are judged cost-effective? For, for example... You cite in, in the paper an accepted upper limit for the cost of a quality in the U.S. of $100,000. Can't we judge whether a therapy either meets this criterion, the less than $100,000 per quality mark, uh, or it doesn't? I think we probably could, but I, I have one caveat about those numbers in the U.S. The nice numbers were very much looked at by many stakeholder groups, and they came up with these numbers. In the United States, there are no firm or hard numbers at all 
um, that $100,000 per quality came from a paper in the Canadian Medical Association Journal in Canadian dollars in 1992, and everybody in the literature in the U.S. has just latched on to that 100000 since that time. So those, that number is very soft. What we envision is eventually, as we have more and more interventions that we've looked at, and we probably certainly have enough now, we'll be able to look at standard deviations from the mean. And then a society has to look at the money and say, well, what's something that's not cost-effective? Is this two standard deviations from the mean or three standard deviations? Uh, but we think that that's something that different stakeholder groups in healthcare will have to get together and decide. But that's where that $100,000 per quality came from. It's a very soft number, but most of the papers use it. On the same theme, are, are th- and I don't know whether this is something that, that is known, but are therapies priced by their manufacturers based on qualities or cost-utility analysis? You know, most of them are not. In the United States, I don't think that's the case. I would think in Europe, yeah, they have to be in Europe because before, particularly before something can come into the national health system in the United Kingdom, and Canada does the same thing. Australia does the same thing. And Europe follows nice. I mean, we're the last holdout in the U.S. But before something will be accepted, it has to meet a certain dollar per quality. If it's less than, again, $40,000 per quality, nice will say, hey, this is something we'll cover. If it's less than 60000 they may cover it in some instances. So if a drug company came in with a drug and it turns out to be $200,000 per quality, well, it's just not going to get covered. And the drug company better lower their price or somehow improve the efficacy of the drug because it's just not going to be on the formulary. In the U.S., remember, Medicare, once something is approved, Medicare cannot dicker with a pharmaceutical company on price. Medicare essentially has to pay the price of the drug. So once it's approved, the drug or the intervention, Medicare meets that price. Congress does not let Medicare, um, you know, dicker with the different companies on that. The drug companies have been highly effective. Their lobby has in that regard. Gary, here's the $64,000 question. As a clinician, what do I do with these findings? Well, I think at this time, Josh... In this particular paper, if anybody has subfovial choroidal neovascularization and you just have these three interventions available, you use photodynamic therapy. I mean, subfovial classic choroidal neovascularization, there's no doubt that among these three interventions that photodynamic therapy is superior and everybody should get that unless they're allergic to the visidine dye and, you know, unless there's some individual reason not. Since this paper, actually, there have been newer interventions there. Uh, Lucentis has come into play, and many doctors are using that, and some people are using Avastin, uh, from which Lucentis was derived. Now, the numbers on Lucentis have not been, I shouldn't say the exact numbers have not been published, but I can tell you that Lucentis probably for the same thing gives you a value gain of approximately twice what photodynamic therapy does. 
So at, at this point in time, Lucentis, these papers that are published in the journals, you know, take quite a few months before they come out, and this macular degeneration arena is moving so fast that things can become, um, they can be out of favor dated by the time, yeah. And at this point, Lucentis injections for this type of treatment, as shown in something called the Anchor Study, uh, give over two times the treatment of uh, photodynamic therapy. I can't discuss the exact numbers until it's published, but I can tell you that it's very high. Gary, is there anything else you'd like to add? I would say that it's not a matter of whether this value-based medicine and cost-utility analysis is coming to the U.S. It's, it's a matter of when. And there is actually money in Congress now um, to try to get something going like NICE over in England. But this is a good system because what it will do is it will improve quality of the care at the same time it improves the efficacy of our dollars. It'll let our healthcare dollars go a lot longer. So it's really good for patients. It will let patients understand better the therapies. It will give doctors a better handle on the value, including the adverse events and including the patient opinions, which many times are not in there. So we see it as a win-win all the way around. The thing that we believe is very important is for physicians to become involved uh, with this because we, and I don't mean to cut the economists in any way, but the economists developed this in the beginning, but the economists are not clinicians, and sometimes they see things very differently than the clinicians who are out there in the trenches treating patients, you know, helping patients. And I think it's very important for physicians to become invested in this, particularly as the government's becoming more interested. I think it's important for the academies to become interested. The American Academy of Ophthalmology is actually quite interested. They put some value of cataract surgery papers into their recent white paper. And I'd love to see the other the academies become invested so that when this does, you know, I come into the United States healthcare system that physicians have a very appropriate voice in this particular methodology. Gary Brown, thank you so much. Josh, it's my uh, pleasure. Gary Brown is co-director of the Center for Value-Based Medicine in Flowertown, Pennsylvania. He's also director of the retina service at the Wills Eye Hospital and professor of ophthalmology at the Jefferson Medical College in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. His paper, A Value-Based Medicine Comparison of Interventions for Subfovial Neovascular Macular Degeneration, appears in the June 2007 issue of Ophthalmology. Ask questions of Dr. Brown or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Call our listener response lines in the United States style area code 646-808-0231. In the United Kingdom dial 020-7558-8275 or Skype JYoungMD. Those numbers can be found on our website as seenfromhere.com. 
as seen from here, is a production of the new media project of the NYU School of Medicine and the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery and is edited by Joe Fry. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.